I'm John Wilson. I think I know mostly who everybody is here, and uh, and we'll just let people slip in as they as they can. <clears throat> I want to. What I want to do uh, for a few minutes this afternoon is, uh, I don't want to do. I, you know, you see the title. It says, "What good is the church?" And uh, some my brother's visiting with us this week, and he was saying, "I'm trying to look at this program and figure out what in the world." These presentations are from the names. You can't tell what what you're going to uh, hear when you get there. But uh, I do want to talk about the church for a while uh, this afternoon. But I don't want to talk about ecclesiology, that is the the doctrine of the church, and I don't want to talk about soteriology, the relationship between the church and salvation, or any of those kinds of heavy topics that are important that we usually talk about. I don't exactly know how to tell you what it is I want to do. I don't think I've ever done this exactly before. But I'd like to talk to you about the uh, why we need the church in our lives and in the lives of our children. And I don't want to talk about this from a theological point of view or, uh, or a, uh, even a biblical point of view, although I think I'm going to say quite a bit about what the Bible says about the church. Uh, I don't know whether this is sociology. I don't think I'm qualified to talk about sociology. But it just has to do with the way we, we relate ourselves to this thing that we call the church. And uh, as you can tell from the title, I think it's a good thing, but I want to talk to you about why it's a good thing. And it may be a sort of defense of the church in a slightly different way than you might have heard before. I don't know. It's very common nowadays to hear, and you'll hear it at the lectureship if you haven't already, that the churches of Christ are fading, or some people even say dying. But if you went to a, a, a lectureship sponsored by some other uh, American religious movement, you'd probably hear the same thing. They'd say, well, you know, the, the church is, is dying. And if you went to a world conference on religions, you'd hear people get up and say, Christianity is dying. In other words, we often start with the premise that we're in something that's sort of hanging on by its fingernails. And I will say it is true that in some places the churches of Christ are dying, in some places the church in the universal sense is dying, and in some places Christianity is dying. If you've ever spent much time in Europe, it's very uh, distressing. You know, we lived in Great Britain for a good bit of time, and I tell you, it was a. When you read about 19th century Victoria in Europe and uh, these beautiful hymns that people were writing, and uh, there's a church on practically every corner in London, and all this, and you think you look at Great Britain now, and you think this is a totally secular society. And uh, so, yes, I'll say in London, maybe, uh, Christianity is, is dying. I'm not even sure you can say that about uh, England or Great Britain as a whole. But it is true that, uh, that membership, that attendance is down in some places. But, the, but it, in fact, is a very narrow view to say what's happening in my little corner of the world is what's happening. And as a matter of fact, people who have a, a sort of world view of uh, Christianity 
And even a worldview of the churches of Christ will say, that's not really been my experience. And that may be your experience if you live in Dallas or Nashville or Abilene, maybe. If things are, you know, attendance is going down and things, the churches are getting smaller. In Southern California, lots of places there used to be churches and there aren't any more, or there's just a few people sort of hanging on. And you could get that, uh, that impression. Uh, and so in some ways, even the adherents, you know, even people who are still very faithful to their own religious tradition or to their own congregation or to, uh, to their own uh, movement, uh, tend to see less value in corporate Christianity than they used to. It's become very common to say, you know, well, Christ, not the church, or, uh, uh, you know, something like that. Well, I, you know, the church is just uh, uh, too far out of date and uh, it's, it's just beyond hope and so on. And it's interesting that to the extent that that's true in the places where that's true, the reaction to it often has been to say, well, what's wrong? Here's what's wrong. It's, it's, it's our praxis. You know, that it's the way we do things. We got to bring them up to date. And if we can get them up to date, people will come back and uh, so we'll, we will try to figure out, I'll say more about this, but it, we become very consumer-based in the way we're thinking about the church, and we think, well, what we've got to do is we've got to find out what people enjoy. Like a big corporation that's got some chewing gum they want to sell. And they say, you know, we'll sell a lot more chewing gum if we'll find out whether people like peppermint chewing gum better or they like, or what, what kind of chewing gum do they like? And so we, we become very consumer-driven, and we think, well, if we'll find out what people like, and then if we do that, then they'll come. They'll come back. Okay. And uh, I don't get around as much as I used to, but I have been, still get around enough to know. I've watched some churches that for the last 15 or 20 or 25 years have been trying to do that. They say, well, we just need to get... We just need to change this because modern people expect this, or what they want is this, or they'll enjoy this more, or we need to meet these needs better. And they just keep doing that, and every time they do it, they lose another 10% mm -hmm. of the congregation. Then they do it again, they lose another 10%. Then they do it again they lose until they just get down to practically nothing and keep trying to do the same thing. What is that old saying? Was it Einstein or somebody that said, if you just keep if you have a problem, you keep trying to solve it in the same way and it doesn't work, and you just say, well, if I just try it again, that was his definition of insanity. That's right. When you just keep trying to do the same thing, it doesn't work, so you just do it some more. And so these adjustments, and I've watched them in churches I've been very close to that just have made one adjustment after another, thinking the consumer will like us better. You know, if we do this, and uh, and and unfortunately, the the corrosion continues. So there seems to be very little correlation between the methods we use to deal with the decline of the churches and the results, which is, from a scientific point of view, not real smart. You know, you just keep trying something; it doesn't work, so you just say, "Let's just try it some more." Now, we get, consequently, we get this general feeling that, well, something's seriously wrong with the church, and it's just going to get worse. And that's probably because the church is just not relevant anymore. 
And as I said, I promised I wasn't going to do theology today, but I do want to read just read this very familiar passage to you from Paul about the church and kind of contrast that with the way so many modern people, even people in the church, think about the church now. This is Ephesians 3. You know this passage. It starts with verse 8. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a way difference between Paul's understanding of the church and what we even in our own churches say about the church nowadays. He says the, the eternal creator God intended he doesn't just say that most of the people in North America are so says the, the principalities and powers in heavenly places, the whole structure of the universe was supposed to learn something about the nature of God. How? Through the church. So obviously for Paul, the church is something very important. Whereas there's a tendency in our culture, and I'm going to limit the, I'm limiting this to our culture because I don't think it's true in some other places. But in our culture, the church is just not very important anymore. Now, here's a point I'd like for you to consider. I've just watched through my life the groups that thrive and survive and the groups that wither and disappear. I'm not talking about even just religious groups. I'm talking about just groups, just movements and I, even ideas that thrive and survive. And something I've noticed, I'll admit this is not a real scientific conclusion, but something I've noticed is that groups that thrive and survive tend to be based on a call for commitment and for sacrifice. They are not consumer driven. Now you can sell chewing gum by, doing, by polling but you can't have a successful church or political party or, or basketball team or choral group or any, any kind of group like that on the basis of let's give them what they want. It's, these things are not created by somebody seeking to please. And uh, the, the, the leaders who step out in front and lead movements that thrive and survive uh, what they have in common is they turn to the people around them and say, our bar is very high and our expectations are very high of you. Frankly, I don't want to insult you, but I don't really care what you want. This is not a group based on caring what you want. This is a group that was sent out by God <coughs> to declare the manif his manifold wisdom to the to the powers and uh, above and on this earth, and it's gonna you're gonna have to be you're gonna have to strive at this so hard you're gonna be bleeding out of your ears before it's finished. And oddly enough, those tend to be the groups that survive, that thrive and survive. 
I noticed this. Uh, I first got thinking this way because of athletic teams. I, you know, I even created, I have never really shown it to anybody. One day I sat my, down my computer and I began to write out a, a coach who's going to deal with a, with a basketball team the way we often deal with local churches now. You know, and, the co and I won't go through all of this, but the coach, you know, begins to say, now I know some of you guys don't like to come to practice a lot, so we'll just cut the practices. And I know they, and the other thing too, this having to bounce the ball all the time, forget it. If you don't like to bounce the ball, you don't have to bounce the ball. You know, and just begins to go through all of the structure of the game and the, and the desire to win. It doesn't really matter if you win, just as long as you're real satisfied with yourself at the end of the game. And you know, uh, have you ever heard of anybody winning their conference when the coach talked that way? No. So uh, I don't know why we think that churches can be talked to that way. Uh, and, uh, and that anything is gonna happen. This, this is just not, win not the winning uh, approach. Uh, when we were in college, we were part of a, of a choral group. Claudette and I both went to Harding. We were in the Harding Chorus. We had a director who'd been a Marine in the Second World War. And I mean, the, the level of expectation was impossibly high. Except that we did it. Because if you didn't, you were gonna pay, you know? And I have often thought back to that, and I've thought, you know, that chorus was so much better than anybody expected. We travel over the, the country and eventually the world and people would say, what? I remember a, a review in Italy once and this guy said, it's like finding these people who've been like in a monastery way back in the mountains and they come out and they've, they've fine-tuned the art of singing uh, you know, to its highest extent. And this is somebody in a very sophisticated Italian context. You know, and of course to them, Cersei, Arkansas was about as far from reality as you could get. They may have been right, I don't know, but, but uh, why could they do, why could that chorus do so well? Coming from that situation, they were mostly Arkansas and Missouri and Oklahoma farm kids, is what they were. It was because the, the, the leader said, I want you here, okay? I'm not gonna ask you what you want. I'm not gonna ask you what would please you. I'm not gonna even ask you whether you like it. And you know what? We loved that. It became a huge priority to us because it was something important to do and we were doing it well. Well, you know, uh, I, I know I watch on this campus uh, fraternities and sororities. They don't act at all toward their group life the way churches and youth groups often act. They don't call people together and, uh, for the first meeting of the sorority and say, now we just kind of play it low, you know, we don't emphasize, I, I know you're a Delta Phi or whatever, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, one fraternity or sorority is as good as another, and, and we guarantee you you'll have to do less in ours than you will in the others. That, that kind of group is going to die. It's the ones that have strong demands, and that's why we have uh, uh, so many organizations, secular and religious in our culture, that thrive on the how hard it is to be a part of them, not how easy it is. Now, I was thinking about all of this, and then I heard, I actually heard an interview on television. I'm about to talk to you about a book I haven't read, I'll admit it. I haven't read this book, but uh, 
I am very intrigued by it. I don't know if you know the name David Brooks. I think he came to speak here over the last year or two. He had, and, I think he, and I believe he writes for the New York Times. I'm not sure uh, about that. Anyway, he has a book called The Second Mountain. The subtitle is The Quest for a Moral Life. And I was quite surprised to hear him say when he was being interviewed on television. Well, let me, I went back and got some reviews of the book and some quotes from the book. Let me just read you a short quotation. Most of us, over the course of our lives, will make four big commitments. To a spouse and family, to a vocation, to a philosophy or faith, and to a community. Our personal fulfillment depends on how well we choose and execute these commitments. I'd love to just talk the rest of the time about that. That is a real insight. There, there are four big commitments we make in our lives, and, the, and as he puts it, our personal fulfillment depends on the choices we make about those four commitments. And then he goes on one step further, which I think is brilliant, and he says, joy as opposed to personal fulfillment. If you want to move from joy, from personal fulfillment to joy, he says, joy comes when we fuse them into one coherent whole, with each of these commitments fortifying and strengthening the others. Isn't that an amazing statement for a modern New York Times? writer to say, you know? Let me tell you what the four were again. Spouse and family, vocation, philosophy or faith, and community. He says, he says uh, what you choose for those is gonna determine your personal fulfillment, but if you want joy in your life, get them fused. Get them where they're all in one place. Now you can see where I'm going with this. I'm gonna say that I, the people I've seen who were joyous in their faith, and in their life in general had, had done that. And the one down there where it says to a community, it was the church. And they had tied their family to it and they had tied their vocation to it and they had tied their philosophy or their faith to it. Brooks goes on, he says, we live in a society that celebrates uh, freedom and choice and that tells us to be true to ourselves to march to the beat of our own drummer to the expense of surrendering to a cause. And we uh, are often amazed at how little it takes for a modern college student to just cancel out on you. We used to think that just because they didn't have any manners. I don't think, I, they have manners. They just are, un, they're just often, they've been taught, they've lived in a world in which it, in which it just said, you know, uh, if you think something better to do, just do it. It doesn't matter what commitments you've made. The commitment becomes secondary to your own immediate desires. And so uh, at the expense of surrendering to a cause, we'll do what looks best to us at the moment. At the expense of rooting ourselves in a neighborhood. You never get too tight. You, you never have anything you could call your neighborhood. You never have a group of people you could call your friends, at the expense of binding ourselves to others in social solidarity and love, he says. I'll, I'll give up my friends real quickly if I can further 
uh, feel my sense of self-expression. So it begins to turn more and more constantly inward. And then this is a direct quote from, still from Brooks, we have taken individualism to the extreme degree and in the process we have torn the social fabric in a thousand different ways. The path to repair is through making deeper commitments. That's a great statement. I hope I get a chance to meet and talk to David Brooks and I'd like to talk about this some more. The path to repair is through making deeper commitments. It's not through finding a church where you like the music okay, or like the preacher. That's not the path to repair. It's through making deeper commitments. The fact is, and I've said this for a very long time, Christianity is practiced in groups. Christianity is practiced in groups. The New <coughs> Testament uh, figures for the church are all corporate figures. Family, body, people, a people, they're all, they all involve not just you. They don't just involve you. It's not just all about you. The church is corporate. It, Christianity is practiced in groups. And Christianity was never meant to be an institution. It was certainly never meant to be an event. I mean, we went through a period and the church was rightly criticized probably for just thinking of itself as an institution. You know, all the emphasis was on the hierarchy and the way it was structured and, and uh, all of that. And, and we studied things out of corporate, uh, uh, how corporations can uh, organize themselves and we tried to do that in our local churches and all that kind of stuff. It, the church is not intended to be an institution. The church is not certainly not intended to be an event like a pageant or a concert. This is our big problem now. We don't think so much of the church as an institution nowadays. We do think of it as an event. What the church is in the New Testament way, and now I am doing a little ecclesiology here, okay? The church is a way of relating to other people. That's what the church is. It's a way of relating. Now we can talk about that word way. There's a lot in there, but it's a way of relating to other people. It does not exist to serve its members. Like even a fraternity demands a lot of you, but it really exists so that later on you can depend on your fraternity brothers to get you a job or something. It doesn't serve its members the way a civic club does. If I become a Rotarian, then that'll be, I'll have some good business connections. Or so it's not something like that. Uh, it. it it doesn't develop its mission or its approach to things by taking polls about people's felt needs and then trying to meet those needs. Now, I didn't say that wouldn't work. You can build a big something that way, and they're all over the country. Uh, big institutions that are calling themselves churches that were built by finding out what a community wanted and then doing it. I'm not saying that won't work part of drawing a crowd. I'm just saying it's not the New Testament concept of what the church is. And uh, 
Now, here's the, here, this is the real the sort of irony of all this. The members of a church, and I'm talking here about a local church, not a denomination or something. They're committed, but they're not committed to everyone. You can't really be, if, if, the, if the path to joy in our lives is deeper commitment, it's not practical to say, well, therefore, I'll just be committed to the whole human race. That's not the way, we're just not, that's not a possibility. Commitments have to come to smaller groups, to smaller groups. It's impossible to be committed to everyone. But when you start being committed to people but not to everyone, that has the sound of being exclusive, you know, doesn't it? Uh, in fact, the early Christians talk about being called by God, and Paul will tell, talk to the church and say, you've got to realize who you are. You're a special group. You're called out by God. It sounds very exclusive. And I think that's one of the criticisms that uh, the church has had. Well, it's just too exclusive. It's not, of course, now we're really big on anything that sounds like we're, uh, that it, it, it speaks of diversity or differences, of, uh, that kind of thing. And so, when you, and so it's very hard for us to accept. I, I, I shouldn't be telling things out of school here about our own congregation, but it's been a long time since we've had a membership directory we have lists of people who are adherents to the congregation, but we, we can't make them out of membership directory anymore because we're gonna to have to make some decisions about some people about whether they're members or not. Instead of doing that, we just have a list of people. If you wanna call them, here's their number. And it's not, it doesn't represent a strong sense of commitment to each other. And this is happening, of course, all, uh, all over the country. The, the irony of that is, however, that in that, that in that act of exclusively binding yourself, insofar as, I, as it relates to the church, I might, this might not apply to a fraternity or to a city club, but when I was a kid, we were taught, I remember sermons in which we were told, never say you joined the church. Is, any, is anybody aware of this? Uh, of this never say you joined the church you did not join the church what was the rest of that statement you were added to it you don't join the church you are added to it well like many other things that we heard as we were kids and we got sophisticated we thought well isn't that kind of, I mean, isn't that cute because the general world talks about joining churches and so we just it's not very it's not uncommon at all now to hear people saying well, I have to think about joining this church or that, you know, and we just sort of, well, I don't mean we ought to be rude about it, but even in our heart of hearts, we don't think, no, that's not really right. You don't join the church here. Or well, why would that possibly be important? Because in the act of doing something exclusive, you became a part of the most inclusive community that's ever existed in the history of the human race. Isn't that interesting? That in becoming a part of that group, which has pretty defined boundaries about who's in it and who isn't, it was a group that was there before you became a part of it. And it had already determined its makeup, and your decision was whether to become a part of that, and it was extremely, exceedingly diverse. And so inclusive becomes uh, amazingly inclusive.
I'm going to come back to that in a, in a couple of minutes. But Now, many young adults uh, return to the church when they realize that in, in, in an increasingly fragmented society, an impersonal society, they need an extended family. I happened to grow up, as some of you did, where we still had extended families. There was grandma and grandpa and aunt and uncle and all, you know, and so on, and they all got together at various times. You had a feeling of being part of, a, of an extended family. you got to realize that a lot of young people have never experienced that. And their family scattered all over, as our family is the next generation from us, are all, literally all over the place. And I think some young families begin to realize, hey, I, you know, something is, is missing from my life that was there in the life of my parents, and I've got to have an extended family. And, of course, there's the church. You know, it's always been offering that to people. And people, believe me, human beings are tribal. And if you want to put this theologically, God created a people. He created a tribe. The early, uh, not in the biblical period, but a little after the biblical period, they used to talk about how the Christians are a third race. You've got the Jews, and you've got the Gentiles, but the Christians are a third race. They're made up of all the peoples of the earth that are drawn together, but they're not drawn together to celebrate their diversity or to celebrate their inclusivity. There be the church. And they, they are, that's why, by the way, uh, Paul tells the Gentiles, you've got to realize you were grafted in. It was there before you. And it had its nature before you ever showed up. So the very, uh, uh, the very idea of you saying you're going to choose a church or you're going to find someplace where your needs are being met, or something like that. I could just see Paul, you know, just hanging his head in sadness for that kind of thinking. So the church is not simply a theological concept. When it's true to itself, it, the church is our people. The church is our family. The church is our home. It's the place where the, the one another passages in the Bible are played out. I don't have time to do this, but I'd love to just read. I've got them on my paper here. All the places in the New Testament that talk about one another. You can see the New Testament writers are saying that it's in that interplay with each other, with the group, with the tribe, with the church, that we find our fulfillment and that we need to be responsible for it. It's not about you. It's about us and the way we relate to each other. So you, you get the picture of how... That, by the way, is, why, is, the, is the significance of having meetings. And this is another thing I've noticed through the years. Uh, I remember, I'm going to say more about the church I grew up in in a minute, but uh, our, we used to meet a lot, <laughs> you know. I mean, we met on Wednesday night, and we met on Sunday night, and we had this and that, and the women had something they did on Thursdays, and. You know, there were lots of meetings. And, of course, we grew much too sophisticated for that now. I mean, no self-respecting progressive church is going to have a Sunday evening service anymore. Certainly not a Wednesday night meeting. Uh, in fact, we're going to have no meetings at all except the one where we take communion. That's, that's going to be it. Uh, you, you think I'm just being sarcastic here, but that's pretty much the way it's going in, the, in, the, in many churches now. 
whereas uh, the old thing was you just every time you turned around there was another meeting at the church and we we got tired of that i got tired of it and so what we did uh, the uh, modern folks began to eliminate most of the meetings and so the only time we the only way we really related to anybody outside of ourselves was not not going down to the church on a Wednesday night or going to Sunday school class, something like that. It was taking that little lighted screen and looking at it and interacting with it. Hmm. I don't have anything against technology, but there's a lot of difference in reacting to a lighted screen and relating to another human being. And every time we drive around the campus, and I go by, we go by one of those uh, bus stops, mm -hmm. and there are 20 or 25 kids out there all of whom have wonderful stories and are wonderful kids and could relate to one another in, one, in so many ways. But you know what they're doing? Mm -hmm. They're doing that. And so that community, that sense of community, we used to call that having a meeting. We had a meeting and we interacted with each other. But we eliminate that and consequently eliminate one of the great powers that the church has. In fact, eliminating meetings is a form of institutional uh, suicide. Groups that stop meeting just just stop. They just stop. And I'll have to admit, I don't want to go back to four or five church meetings a week. Maybe that's just because I'm getting old, you know. No. I don't know, but I we I, I don't I. But I just have to admit, the other part of me says, if you stop having meetings, you're going to stop being a church, and it won't take all that long. Now, what good is the church? And this, I just want to take a few minutes now to talk about this and maybe we'll even have some time for some discussion um, the church is going to do certain things for you and for your family I didn't mean to say it wouldn't do some things for you and I can personally testify to some of those things but before I personally testify to them I want to tell you how I'm going to try to avoid a temptation of people who've been around for a long time. I was getting a presentation together about what the Bible says about being old and what the Bible says about being young. And as I was preparing this, I ran onto a verse. I knew about it years ago, but I hadn't thought about it for a long, long time. It's in Ecclesiastes. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 10. Do not say, why were the old days better than these for it is not wise to ask such questions that's a that's a good one i probably ought to have that framed uh, and put somewhere because uh there's a great ten so what i'm about to do i'm not telling you the old days were better okay i'm just telling you about having had several decades now to look back on my experience of the church as a young person and try to say what you know, what, what does it look like now? In and when I think about all these things I've just been talking with you about, about what the church is and what the church needs to be doing and so on. Now, I went to a little uh, blue-collar church that had a single person with a college education in it growing up. Uh, people worked with their hands. They were Some were auto mechanics and some worked on the railroad. Some uh, worked at the post office sorting mail, and that's, that's what they did. And uh, 
those people were called on by that church to be sacrificial. I think back and I think, how did that church get by with bringing these people in that could barely make it, barely pay their meals and say, you really ought to give more to the Lord. And I think, what? I mean, this is the me, the now me talking. Don't do that. You'll drive these people away. They don't have any money. And anyway, you're never going to build a church on telling people to give you some more money. Didn't work that way at all. They just figured out ways to spend less on themselves and put some more money in the basket. You know, isn't that amazing that they reacted to that call to be sacrificial? And they call for commitment. Okay, we're going to we're going to have a tent revival, and we want all everybody over here on Saturday to give up all of your weekend putting up a tent, whether you know anything about how to put up tents or not. And they all showed up. You know, commitment. You got to put its activities first. Uh, if you if you uh, if you have some other commitment fine, but if you're going to be a Christian and be in the church, what it needs from you comes first. I remember, boy, this was a struggle sometimes. I, when I was in high school, I did the, uh, I was uh, saying on television. These are early days of television, so you know, we was, I, this was sort of minor celebrity. And, and uh, these were in the early days, by the way, of Pat Boone. Pat Boone and I were the same generation, and and uh, so uh, one time they decided to have a big show in the Shrine Mosque in Springfield, Missouri, this big auditorium. Thousands of people were going to be there. It was going to be televised and the whole thing. And uh, my partner, I sang with a girl, we were duets, you know. Wednesday night, it's going to be a Wednesday night. And uh, by the way, I'm not going to present myself as the hero in this, I, I crumbled, I did it, <laughs> you know, I missed Wednesday night, and I went on the stage before several thousand people and was on TV and all of that, you know. Well, the folks back at the North National Church of Christ, they didn't say anything to me about it. They didn't condemn me, but boy, I was very sheepish for quite some time after that. Of course, I just counted on the fact that they hadn't seen it because they were at church on Wednesday night, <laughs> didn't know I'd done it. But I've thought back on that, even though my level of commitment doesn't quite extend to that nowadays. And there are things I'd miss a church service for, and I, you know, and, all, and I've got my justification for that. But that spirit, you know, that that comes first, uh, that was one reason that church was working, that it was fulfilling the needs of its members. So, and the other thing that I've thought about looking back on that church uh, we were a bunch of little kids there in my Sunday school class and then youth group. Uh, but we didn't have kind of youth activities. Well, we had some, but, but we thought in terms of the church. We didn't think in terms of our youth program. So we knew everybody. We literally knew everybody all ages, all professions, all situations in life. We knew everybody. So much to, to such an extent that I can today go into my library and I can get an old church directory 
by the way, they knew exactly who was a member of that congregation and who wasn't. But I can go back and get one of those church directories, and I can go through it, and I can pull up the face of every single person in it, even though I was there as a seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old boy. These were my people. Their lives were intertwined with mine. I, I knew them. So, what does the church do, looking back on that kind of situation? Well, it, it provides that extended family that transcends all of our usual differences. It provides us a tribe, which we all need, but it's not a tribe based on race, it's not based on economic status, it's not based on education, it's not based on culture, it's not based on how old you are. It's the most diverse and at the same time inclusive movement in human history. I want to underline that because I think that is, is the case. It is the most, at the same time, diverse and inclusive movement in human history. We call it the church. And because of that relationship, anywhere we ever went in the world, we could find our kind. They weren't necessarily our race or our culture or our language, but they were our kind. And uh, that's whether it was in Jerusalem or whether it was in Italy or whether it was in South America or wherever it was. So there's that irony of inclusive exclusivity. The second thing I've got to rush on here, that, that it provided loyalty in a treacherous world where there's not a lot of loyalty. There was loyalty there. It was a loyalty that went beyond blood kin, it went beyond race, it went beyond any of those kinds of things. It was more substantial than just finding some friends. Well, they were my friends, but they were far more than friends. And, uh, you know, when we, used to, when we used to always call people brother and sister, we still did a little bit, but that's kind of gone away too. Because it got sounding kind of quaint. The thing is about it, though, as I look back on it, we actually meant that. You know, those, you know, that's not just Charlie; that's Brother Charlie. And uh, and there was that strong sense of commitment to these people. They weren't just friends. And by the way, it it, it was not it, the your relationship to that group wasn't because they liked you so well in it. I found out later some of those people didn't like me at all. Glad I didn't know at the time. But, uh, and I certainly didn't like some of them. I can tell you that. I can remember some of them I didn't like. It wasn't based on liking them. Because the church chooses us. We are added to the church. The church chooses us. We don't choose it. One of my favorite things from C.S. Lewis that I like to talk about is C.S. Lewis saying, now here's C.S. Lewis. He's a world-renowned author. He's a an Oxford professor, <coughs> great sophistication. And he says in one of his writings, you know, when I go to church, when I go in, I am forced to sit next to the smelly butcher. And I love that phrase, the smelly butcher. There's C.S. Lewis and there's the smelly butcher. And there's a tie between those two that transcends everything else. Those two people couldn't be more different from each other. But it's, it's Brother C.S. Uh, 
and it's Brother Smelly Butcher, and that transcends everything else. It, the church accepts us because we're a part of the family, and sometimes it accepts us only because we're a part of the family. Now, I know we could talk, and often we like to talk about the times when the church treated somebody wrong. It, it does that. Or excluded somebody unfairly or hurt somebody. I know all those stories, okay? We can tell all those stories. But it's kind of like bad news and good news. People like to hear bad news. They don't really much want to hear the good But I can tell you thousands of stories of people who were picked up by the church that there wasn't an attractive thing about them. Nothing. And it was because they were a brother that they were picked up and cared for. And they did some really bad things sometimes. And even when the church had to discipline somebody in some way, I have a strong memory of a couple of cases I saw of church discipline where the elder that got up to do it was wept. Uh, in the days when men didn't cry uh, because it was like sending away one of his own children, you know. So it's, it, it is a place where there's loyalty. Now, two other things quickly. Another thing that the, that the church, that I see doing for me, and I think it still does for people, it, it ennobles our lives. It lifts our goals toward, toward altruism and toward service and toward spirituality. Very often, kids, they're not here in any place else. It would be good to not just live for yourself. It would be really good to be a servant of other people. It would be really good to stand up for the, for the, the downtrodden. It would be good. They're not really getting this on TV sitcoms. They're not getting it on hero, uh, superhero movies. They're not getting that philosophy. If they are going to be ennobled, they're going to get a church. I, again, if I can use a personal uh, situation, my, my own father, you know, sort of a kicking around young man, not a bad guy, but just living, you know, in a pretty, pretty shallow sort of way. When he came, when he intersected with, um, with the gospel and with the church, it completely changed the way he understood his life. Now, I'm not just t talking about piety or, you know, I'm talking about somebody rising, uh, in, uh, being ennobled by what they could become, by becoming a Christian, by making the church a part of him and of his, of his family. And then, interestingly enough, and I don't know what this has got to do with anything, except it's just something I've noticed. The church also exalts education and the, for its children. There, there's always in our own movement. We ought to be. We like to criticize our movement. Let's think about how our movement is never anywhere very long before they start uh, creating schools and emphasizing education and being sure that our kids learn and read and, and expand. I don't know what it is, but there's something in, sort of in our DNA that just pulls us toward toward education, that impulse to start schools, that impulse to encourage learning. And, and, and the church kids for generations have tended to get more education than their parents did. 
because often when the parents didn't have, didn't even know anything about education, I'm not really sure that either of my parents had ever really been all on a, a college campus when I went away to school. Now my mother had, was a beautician in a beauty shop across the street from a university campus. But uh, I, I had very little instruction from them about how to apply to top 50 schools or uh, how to do the GR, well, not the GRE, but the other thing, the ACT and all of You know, I didn't get much advice about that, but I just understood I, I needed to get as much education as I possibly could. And my brother got the same thing and everybody in our Sunday school class got the same thing and everybody did it. Every single kid in that class ended up with a graduate education. Every single one of them. And yet I never, I don't remember anybody preaching on that or there was just something in the, in the atmosphere, the, the, the corporate atmosphere that said, extend your mind as far as you can go. Learn what you can. Learn how to think straight. Learn what the, the facts are. And then use it in a, being ennobled. Then use it for the good of your fellow human beings. That's the message we got. I don't know if we ever heard a sermon like that or not. But that's the message we got. Now, uh, the social scientist, Alfred, uh, or his name is Arthur uh, C. Brooks, wrote, I want to read this to you and then just comment on it briefly. America is suffering an epidemic of loneliness. According to a recent large-scale survey from the healthcare provider Cigna, most Americans suffer from strong, most Americans suffer from strong feelings of loneliness and a lack of significance in their relationships. Nearly half say they sometimes or always feel alone or left out. 13% of Americans say that zero people know them well. Talk sometime to the people at the Counseling Center at Pepperdine. Pepperdine's a whole lot different from UCLA but they've got a string of kids coming in there saying, I am so lonely. The survey, which charts social isolation using a common measure known as, the oddly enough, the UCLA loneliness scale, shows that loneliness is getting worse in each successive generation. We are getting more and more and more lonely. When you see these university kids around, I try to think about this. I try to think, I had what I've been telling you about. They have not, they've often not had it. They've not been in a church that functioned that way. They don't have an extended family. They don't have a spiritual family. So all of this, this loneliness is getting worse and it's all coinciding with a decline of things like what we call denominational loyalty or congregational loyalty. You know, everybody talks about how the kids are not loyal to those things anymore. Uh, and yet in the process, they're getting lonelier and lonelier. Has anybody made the connection? Maybe there's some connection between those two things, you know? So uh, in the meantime, we have the ascendancy of what we, I think this is the real irony, we call social media. That's a real irony to use the word social of the way we are relating to the outside world. Now, I've already mentioned that, that, that white screen. 
And the churches in the meantime, desperate about this situation, began to think about young people as customers. Whereas the, the, in the old days, I'm sorry, I wasn't supposed to say that. In the old days, we thought of the young people in the church as soldiers. And we thought we were in a battle and they were soldiers. Now we think of them as customers that if they don't like our music or they don't like this or that, they might not come to our event. You know, it's just so far the, the, the thinking has changed. So society is stressing self-image, self-realization, personal achievement, success, individualism is swallowing up the loyalty and everybody's looking at their little screen. I have nothing, I spend most of my day looking at a screen, okay, so don't, uh, don't worry, I haven't flipped completely out. I understand the world that we live in. But that's not the same thing as being a part of a vibrant spiritual family. It's just not. And if you do it, you're going to end up feeling very, very lonely. Well, I want to tell you one very sad story, and then I'm going to quit. Uh, Claudia and I used to sing for uh, funerals. We had a friend who was a funeral director, and he'd call and say, John, uh, got a funeral this afternoon, and... Uh, would you all mind to come over and sing? Sometimes we didn't know who the deceased was. We'd just go into the back of the uh, funeral home and we'd get in this little room and I could tell you some interesting stories about that, but, and we'd sing three or four songs and we'd leave. But I remember this one case very well. We went over there and I, I peeked out and there was a, uh, uh, a person, the, uh, the deceased, stretched out there in front of us, and I looked at the crowd, there was his wife, and there was his daughter, and that was it. The room was empty. I don't know the guy's name. I don't know that I even looked at the little thing to see about it, but I thought, whoa. He was an old man. And there were two people there, his wife and his daughter. That was the extent of his community. And I don't want to make too much out of the story because I don't know much about them, but I, I've just always seen that as the price of isolation. Uh, you know, when they stretch you out, if you've been very attractive to people for one reason or another, there'll probably be some folks there. Uh, but ultimately, when it really gets down to it, uh, most of the folks that are going to be there were the church folks. You know, we had some friends who had a very tenuous relationship with the with the, the church we were a part of, and they would get upset about things and be gone for a long time and then come back. And finally, one time they came back, we said, why did you come back? And they said, because we, we actually realized that if we got into real dire straits, these are the only people that would care. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so I don't know whether you call that sociology, I don't know whether you call that ecclesiology, I don't, I don't know what you call it, but I know that's one of the things that's good about the church. Uh, it, 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 doesn't, it does tend to give us 
some folks to at least come and see us off, you know, <laughs> to sort of care about them and all. And, and it does give you some folks that when you get real sick, they're probably the ones that come over to the hospital. You know, and, and all those things. I don't have to talk about it anymore. You get my point. It's, uh, it's just something to think about. And I just wonder if instead of trying to figure out what consumers want and then provide it for them, if we didn't start thinking kind of in these ways about our communal life, if we might, then it, it, it's all right if people don't flock to that, but the people that are there are going to find what the, this writer called joy. Well, thank you. I used up all the time. Sorry about that, but maybe we can talk. Thank you very much.